mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's Candace and Kayla, and we are directionally challenged. Yep, we were supposed to have everything figured out by this point in our life, but guess what? Surprise, we don't. We don't. <laughs> Luckily, tons of us do not have it all figured out. And guess what? It's totally okay. Um, but we have a guest today who we think has a lot of stuff figured out. You've heard her name mentioned on this podcast so many times, Julie Plack. The epic Julie Pleck <laughs> is with us today. We are so excited. We've wanted her as a guest from the start. And we just admire so much who she is as a woman and everything she represents. And we think that you guys will absolutely love this conversation we're having with her. We are humbled to be able to call her a friend at this point. She was the creator, executive producer of Vampire Diaries, writer, directed many episodes. Um, she now also, the, the, and then also had the originals. The spinoff. The spinoff the of the originals. She's now got legacies out. Yeah. Uh, she's an executive producer on Roswell, New Mexico. I mean, she the list could go on forever, you guys. And I know she has so many stories to go along with all of it. So with Without further ado, we, we want you guys to hear this awesome interview with the infamous Julie Pleck. Guys, we are here with 
one of our absolute, do I say all time favorite guests? We haven't even had the interview yet. And we love her so much. Epic guest. (laughs) Julie Pleck. We are so excited you're here. I am so happy to be here. By the way, like I started, you know, listening to your guys' podcast when you first launched and I thought, oh, that's nice. Like, the, you know, it's all about like not knowing where you're going to be when you're 30. I'm like, so they're never going to invite me on and I'm never going to be able to come and do this because I'm past 30. So I'm really happy that you guys have like expanded your <laughs> part of it is statement. also bringing people on that we admire. So we want to then we want to try and emulate. And I think that's a position you fit okay. more so than someone who's directionally challenged because we're sitting in your gorgeous house. You definitely have your life together. I can tell you that. much. Oh, oh if only if you were definitely on our short list right when we started oh, of course we're like oh, julie's gotta come on mm-hmm. <laughs> we were hoping well so I'm, this is I'm proud to be here and amazing. i've been listening to everything and i love it and you thanks. guys are doing a great job already so. well you're doing a great job juggling all these hats executive producer writer showrunner director <laughs> i know can you believe it? i know did you think you'd be directing at this point did you no, ever want to be a director no never mm. I mean the story I and I've told it a lot and so I'll try to keep it brief um, but the story I always tell is that there were two things when I moved to Hollywood that I knew fundamentally I would never do one was writing and one was directing and the reason was <laughs> <laughs> scarred from college I had taken a playwriting class in college it was the only writing class I ever took and I hated it so much and I wrote like this crap 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 play overnight when it was due like everybody had been working on their play all all quarter and I think I wrote it in about 36 hours and the teacher just looked at me and kind of like shook his head in disapproval and I think I got like a C or a C minus which may have been the lowest grade I ever got in my entire life I got in playwriting at Northwestern and then I also directed a musical in Northwestern which I had waited my whole like four years to be able to do because I was a stage manager and behind the scenes and running crew and a producer and all I wanted to do was direct and I was so bad at it, like bad at it, um, in a way that scarred me so much that I thought, well, I will never do those two things again. And what I did realize when I did direct the musical that I was really good at producing. And so I just figured that was my path. And lo and behold, the two things that scared me the most and that basically I sucked at the most ended up being the two things that I fell into later in my career and have now just kind of absorbed and and now that's just what I am. Oh, that's so great. I want to I want to go on that journey with you. So you start at, when when did you first think that you would had stories to tell? Okay, so I never thought I really had stories to tell. Um and yet when I really looked back at it realized I'd been telling stories my whole life. And so uh because um because of the playwriting class, I'd always been a creative writer and like mostly <laughs> Really, my journey is this. When I was in third grade, I entered the young author contest by writing a little story and I won. And then also in third grade, I was bored. And so I wrote like Cinderella, the play uh, on mimeograph paper and directed the kindergartners. But somehow those two things and then all the the little short stories and stuff I wrote as a kid never occurred to me that I was a creative writer or that I was a storyteller in any way. I just was like looking for something fun to do. And then, and I, as I got into college, high school and college, every time there was a paper due, I would first panic, procrastinate, panic, cry, hyperventilate, die a little, um, (laughs) and then write it really quickly the night before it was due. And I would always get A's, which was a nice 
terrible. I would never recommend it to anybody because the emotional experience was so awful. Only you can but- procrastinate and get A's. <laughs> like, I could always get A's. What? And, um, but what happened was, is that I, because I didn't really have time or the brain power to do a lot of research as a way of getting through the paper, I would take like a creative angle on it um, uh, and make it my, almost like a creative writing assignment. So I would do something sort of kitschy or fun or cool um, and made the paper a really fun read. And so teachers and my professors, I think, were just so glamored by the fact that it wasn't a dry, boring paper that it didn't, they didn't realize that I had kind of fucked off the work mm. <laughs> and hadn't really done the homework, you know, and, um, and we're just thrilled that it, it wasn't boring. And so I skated my whole life by being creative. And yet I think because I hadn't, you know, because of the stupid playwriting class, <laughs> I just felt like it wasn't a gift that I had and that I wasn't any good at it. And, and it wasn't until I was honestly in my thirties, I think that somebody, enough people said, why aren't you writing? You should be writing because I was working with writers. I was helping writers. I was ghostwriting for writers just as a way of like getting words on the page for them so that they could take it and make it better. Um, and somebody's like, why aren't you a writer? And I said, cause I'm bad at it. And then I sort of looked around and realized, well, wait a second, actually I've written words that have ended up on TV. I've written words that have ended up in a movie. I, you know, have been telling stories theoretically since I was a kid. I read a million books as a kid. So it just kind of happened. So I think I was my own worst critic, frankly. And I think that that's a thing that we do to ourselves. We just convince ourselves that like, if you're not perfect, if you're not extraordinary at something that it's not worth pursuing uh, and we talk ourselves out of our own ambition sometimes. And we let other people dictate what we are and what our abilities are by their judgment. Yeah. Like the fact that he said, oh, well, that wasn't a good enough paper. That's not a great writing piece. It's like, oh, well, I guess that's not my thing. Yeah. And by but the way, he was right. <laughs> it was bad. But like, does that mean that I just am incapable of putting words on the page forever? Somehow in my head, that's what I define that as. as and and I was wrong. I, and I, it probably took me another 10 years before I felt even remotely comfortable. Not even 15 years before I was in my 30s for sure, before I felt comfortable saying, like, I think I can do this. So is it is it Kevin Williamson who asked you if you are a writer or who <laughs> did you meet Williamson or Wes first? That's what I was trying to. What, we're talking Wes Kevin Craven Williamson or Wes or Craven. Craven. Yes. OK, so right. I moved out of um, out of college. I moved to California to pursue my dreams. And people always say, well, what did you want to do when you got here? And I said, I wanted to be around famous people. And. <laughs> That is the dumbest thing, but in its own way is completely true. Like I do not, I've always been a little bit embarrassed by my aspirations <laughs> and the way that it all began. Cause I just, you know, I grew up loving movies and TV and I just wanted to be a part of it. I wanted mm -hmm. to be like a guest at the party, you know? And, um, and so I was lucky enough um, I had, a, you know, one job that lasted not long and was over, <laughs> not not soon enough. Um, but I then was able to go work for Wes Craven as his assistant, um, even though I didn't like horror movies and I didn't want to be a director, of course, let's remember, because I sucked at it. Right. So uh, I was just so glad to get out of the job I had before that, which lasted about four months. Um, and then I met Kevin within that first year because he had written Scream and he came in to meet with Wes and I said hello and shook his hand. And because I was an executive, 
for Wes and then Kevin Williamson and then a couple other producers over my, you know, early career days. I met a lot of writers along the way and I would do a lot of work with those writers to help them shape their pitches or edit their scripts. And so many of those writers, one of whom um, was a friend of mine from college who this small time hack TV producer named Greg Berlanti. That's crazy that you guys were <laughs> friends from college. Yeah. By the way, the story I always tell is that Greg took that playwriting class before me. And he said that's the class that made him, taught him everything he knows Just about writing. <laughs> and he still uses the like sort of story breaking format he learned in that class. And that changed his whole life for the better and made him realize just how much God-given talent he had that class. <laughs> Just like, well, I that just goes just to show that everyone works differently too. Yeah. Like you're both so successful in your own right, but what worked for him didn't resonate with you and vice versa. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it did. And I would be like, I just don't understand what this man is saying. <laughs> um, but Greg was very supportive early on. Just he and I would, you know, sit together in our studio apartment down the hall from each other and order Chinese food and, and talk about the stories he wanted to tell. And I would help him, you know, just, I was a sounding board and I was, uh, you know, a partner in that and just talking about characters and moments and great beats and reading scripts and talking about why we love scripts. And it just kind of grew from there. And so the first time I ever wrote a TV spec, um, which is jumping ahead a little bit, but when I sent it to him, he goes, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I've said it all along. You're a writer. You are a writer. And so that was nice. Do you think a lot of your success <clears throat> is attributed to your relationship with Greg and growing up down the hall from each other, being able to bounce ideas off of each other? Because you both are so successful that I'm wondering if that relationship or having someone like that that's brutally honest with you, that's encouraging you, all of those things it helps you grow into the person you are. Yeah, I would say it was sort of like a trifecta of Greg, Kevin, and then Marianne Madalena, who was Wes Craven's producing partner, because I was sort of still working for Wes and Marianne, uh, even as I was working with Kevin, because we were doing Scream 2 and then other things together. I was friends with Greg and we were living down the hall from each other. And I was I had become on the set of Scream really good friends with Kevin. And so he would call me and be like, oh my God, come over. I have to write Halloween H2O and I have to work out this scene. Will you come talk me through it? And so I was constantly like between my job with Marianne and Wes, where Marianne was constantly just like putting stuff in front of me saying, can you read this? Can you tell us what you think? Will you help us do notes? You know, we really like everything you have to say and just empowering me creatively on the job level. Greg and I with the Chinese food, you know, three nights a week talking about stories and 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 our lives and how our lives could be good stories and then Kevin sitting with him the other four nights of the week with Chinese food probably and getting into the fundamentals of story breaking and set piece breaking so because he just needed he needed somebody to bounce that up and I was you know I was 20 oh my gosh I mean I was 25 or 26 I think, you know, there's a five year stretch of this. So about the time from 25 to 29, where all this was going on. And for me, Kevin was blowing up. He was completely becoming successful. Wes, because the scream was, at, you know, the top of his game, had just scripts upon scripts coming his way that I was reading and getting all this kind of access to material. And Greg was just getting started. And, you know, and so I was able to watch my friend have his first TV job, you know, in our world and Dawson's Creek and then write his first movie. And so there's just 
energy of creation and stories and and being a part of being a guest at the party, right? In fact, I remember speaking of an actual party, Greg got invited to the Vanity Fair Oscar party when we were like 29 years old, I think. And um, he took me as his plus one. (laughs) And we just, I mean, like we knew nobody, but we stood there and we looked at Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington and Nicole Kidman. And we were just like, Oh, we're in Hollywood. Your way that you do parties is my favorite way. You sit, oh. you go to the bar, you get <laughs> yeah. your drinks, you sit in the corner, and then you look at everyone and you whisper about everyone. Yep. Like, oh my and gosh, can you believe that? So tweet about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe subtly throw a tweet at it. So, you're, so you're working with Wes at this time. What, what was your role with Wes then? I had no idea that you weren't writing independently at this time. For no. some reason, I think is even talking to Marguerite McIntyre, oh. like, who played Candace's who, who mom, played my mom obviously who, is julie's really close friend and a brilliant writer brilliant yeah. writer who wrote on vampire diaries who wrote on um containment the, the originals the originals and legacies, and legacies oh, wow. now and she she's like oh yeah i've been writing forever i've just always written 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 and so it's interesting to me i didn't know at this point that you were kind of more what were you doing in that producer role like for people that are interested listeners that are asking themselves, well, what does that look like if you move to LA and want to be a producer? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I went to a very good film school, except I, and I love Northwestern and this is not a knock on them. But at the time I was like, this is a really crappy film degree because somehow I got through two years of a film major. I ended up moving out of film and into just basic um, communications just to have more, you know, a broad variety of classes that I wanted to take. But I, didn't know how the business worked. I thought you could either be a director um, and directors direct, obviously writers, write, Producers. I thought just got the money together, which held no interest for me. And then, or you could be a critic, an analyst, a student of film. Um, and since I wasn't a very good student to begin with, that didn't seem like <laughs> the right you know path for my career. So when I moved to LA, which I did, you know, with the money in my bank account and, uh, and a lot of hopes and dreams, um, I didn't really know what to do. And somebody before the night before I moved, a friend of my cousins said to me, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm interested in. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, when you get to Hollywood (laughs) and someone asks you that question, what do you want to do? you have an answer. He goes, it doesn't need to be true. It doesn't need to be even remotely true, but have an answer because if someone's taking this moment to ask you what you want to do with your life and you have an answer and that answer preferably fits into what they do, then they can help you. But if you are ah, behind the sky, stars and everything, you know, um, they're, they're just, they're not going to think of the thing that they can do to maybe give you a boost. And so that is fantastic. Yeah, advice. it's great advice, honestly. And I give it all the time because I mean, it seems like a lie, but it isn't right. Yeah, I mean, it is, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a lie for the powers of good. Right. You are basically taking an opportunity that you have to sit face to face with someone, whether it's a job interview, a mentor program, whatever. Someone who's taking time out of their day, their busy day to guide you or to hire you potentially. And you're just like focusing in on, on the point that matters. So one of the first job interviews I had was for an agent and she looked at me and she said, what do you want to do here? You're new to Hollywood. What do you want to be? I said, I want to be an agent. And she goes, great, you're hired and hired me. Like it was that easy. It was a five minute interview. 
And then she said, and I will pay you $290 a week. And I was like, great. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was the, that was the advice that kind of got me smartly my first job. Um, but very quickly whilst working as an agent's assistant, and in this case it was a talent agent too. So it was just actors. I realized, oh, this is terrible. This is a terrible job. Why would anybody else want this job? And so I was sort of still in that that place of like, I don't really know what I want to be. I just want to be here. And then I got the job with Wes in spite of, like I said, having no desire to be a director and no interest in horror movies. Um, And I was, you know, responsible for his dry cleaning and getting his coffee. But I was also just sitting there um, doing, you know, whatever they asked me to do. And the development executives at the company started putting scripts on my desk and asking me to help read and write little summaries, uh, what's now, you know, called coverage, basically, although I was not really writing real coverage. And they realized I could read like five or six scripts a day, sometimes like 10 scripts a day. And then I could then, after I was done reading the scripts, kind of give them like an oral um, synopsis, synopsis of, of what the script had been. And I could hold it in my memory long enough to talk about it. And then I could have sort of an analytical and evaluative point of view about whether it was good or not. And Within that, all of a sudden, they started giving me more and more to do. And Wes started to take my feedback and my notes into meetings with him. And I learned about this field called development, which nobody had taught me. And I was so pissed because, you know, talk about like knowing to go out to Hollywood with a point of view about what you want. Like, of course, it's the perfect job for me. But Mm -hmm. I didn't even know it was a thing till I'd been in this town for over a year working. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGE right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. I came to it a little bit circuitously, but that is a great place to begin. And by begin, I mean, post your assistant level. Um, The other piece of advice I always give to people coming out here is whilst working at an agency is quite possibly the worst job you'll ever get. It is the (laughs) singularly best option for you as an assistant to meet people, to make connections, to learn information and to be at the center of the information pipeline. And so suck it up and do it. If you can get a job 
preferably at one of the bigger agencies, which are hard to come by. But if you can get in there, mailroom, whatever, receptionist through just a temp program, do it because information in Hollywood is really the thing that gets you. Some assistant down the way knows the other person looking for an assistant and then they know 10 more people looking for an assistant. And you can say, oh, you know what? TV really interests me all of a sudden because I'm working in TV, this TV side. And then they can hear about a job that you could get being a PA in a writer's office. It's all that word of mouth and the domino effect of knowing. It's incredible. Yeah. And you work so hard and you get paid not that much and less so now, I would hope. Knock, knock. Hashtag time's up and me too. Mm. But like not everyone in the agency business is a nice person. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are very, very loud <laughs> and very <laughs> aggressive and not necessarily all that polite um, to their coworkers. Uh, so, you know, it cannot be. I used to go home from my first agency job just crying because mm. it was such a miserable job. But, you know, you do what you do. So you meet these wonderful mentors, per se, in, in Wes and in Kevin and I think you mentioned one other person, Marianne. Who, Marianne. Marianne yeah. And um, at what point do you realize like, oh, you know what? I have a project that I want to develop. Was that in the middle of working with all of them or was it afterwards? As a writer? Yes. Or did you start yeah. writing a pilot then eventually or did you discover a project you wanted to develop? What was the order of? Because I think it was it Kyle XY or was it a different? So there is um, it's a little bit of a of a woo-woo story about why I started writing, but it's a good one, I think. And, and, and I've told it before, but I, I really like, I I believe in my soul that it was like my calling waking up, right. That in, in my soul, my calling exploded and it revealed itself to me. Um, and it is right after I was done working with Kevin, um, I was still kind of freelancing with Wes and Marianne to help them with some stuff just to make some money. Greg had exploded. You know, Greg was just, you know, almost an overnight sensation. And I was drifting a little bit. And I think I had, I think I was like 29. um, And I had worked really, really hard for a lot of years. And then kind of, it's a very long story, but kind of, I don't know, just burnt out a little bit. And at 29, by the way, <laughs> hilariously. Um, but I was laying in bed sort of feeling, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. What am I doing? And I had a bit of a panic attack in the middle of the night and I started to cry. And I was crying deep, heavy, oh my God, I might not catch my breath. So heaving, heaving mm-hmm. panic sobs, which Hadn't really happened to me since high school writing papers. <laughs> My mom being like, what's wrong? Oh, I can't do this. <laughs> um, and then out of nowhere, a voice came into my head and it said, you need to write. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like a voice from God, only I'm not religious. Yeah. So just a voice. Just a, yep. Um, yeah. You need to write. You need to be a writer. And I thought, hmm, okay. Well, uh, Okay, how do I do that? And then I realized I had been watching all this TV. It was a golden age, first golden age, pre-Lost, but basically right on The Sopranos, first golden age of television. There's everything great. So I said, all right, I'm going to write a TV spec, which is what you do. Like you write a spec episode of a show that's on the air. Um, And I chose Buffy. And I sat and I, over 10 days, came up with the whole idea for Buffy, wrote the whole thing, sent it to Greg, who said... 
circling back. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) And then that I thought was the beginning of what would have been my, my writing career. And that was when I was 29. And then a series of unfortunate events prevented that from coming to pass. And it's something I never really talk about, but it's like, it scarred me for close to a decade and what it was. And I'll try to like, I don't know, maybe I'll protect the names of the innocent. Maybe I won't. But um, what happened was Greg said, I'm going to hire you on Everwood if it gets picked up. And he said, you're going to be a writer and a producer. And I'm so happy. I'd helped him cast the show. I'd helped him develop the script. And so for him, it was like a way to finally get to work together um, with me as an actual writer. And on a show that's so iconic. I loved that show yeah. growing up. There, yeah. yeah. And so it it got picked up, um, you know, for to go to series after the pilot. And he called and he said, they're going to call and make an offer. Here's what they're going to pay you. This is so great. I'm so happy. And I was like, woohoo, going to be a writer. You know, by the way, the easiest way in, which is such (laughs) bullshit, which is why this story, it's probably good that the story took a dark turn. But I would take it, just (laughs) take it on a tangent for a second. You did different kind of work to get there. A lot of different kind of work. So, and I did, and I had been producing and I'd actually ended up had, uh, you know, been writing quite a lot, just not as a writer, you know, just helping. Um, And so then, and by the way, it should be made clear that I was down to like the last $5 to my name. I was definitely not in a good financial place. And I waited for that call to come and waited another day and waited another day. And then Greg and his partner called me and they're like, we have some news and it's not good. And the news was that somebody at the WB had refused to hire me because of their experience with me when I worked for Kevin on Dawson's Creek. They did not like me. They thought I was a bad person. And they essentially blackballed me from the WB network. And but by the way, this is the time when like all I watch is the WB. I am basically 17 years old in my soul, like, and will be forever. And the WB was like alias, I'm not alias, sorry, Felicity and Buffy Mm -hmm. and Dawson's and I mean everything. Roswell. Roswell. Yeah, exactly. The original. And um Gosh, I guess it wasn't 99. Hang on a second. Let me think about... Oh, no, yeah, because it would have been 2001, I guess. Um, And I got blackballed. And Greg, he's like, Julie, I literally wrote a six-page letter to this person explaining how much I need you. And the response was, if you need her, you can pay her out of your own pocket and put her in an office somewhere off grounds of the offices of Everwood because that woman <gasps> quote that woman will never work at the WB again. Did you look like his ex-wife or something? I, I'm trying to understand this. So okay so I guess the moral of the story we don't get into the more of the details but I had to it took me about 10 years to kind of learn the lesson here mm-hmm. because basically what I was character characterized as by this person was a power hungry control freak. Uh, and he, who he did not want anywhere near his business. And the reason he characterized me as a power hungry control freak was because I, when, when I worked on Dawson's Creek, I got very, very, very involved. Even though I hadn't been hired by the network, I was not a writer on the show. I was not a producer on the show. I worked for Kevin. And as Kevin's partner in crime and as his executive, and he said to me, he was directing a movie at the time, he said, get in there and make sure 
that things are going well. You know what I like. You'll know, you'll know if it goes down the wrong road. So just keep me posted until I can get back in there. And then when Kevin did get back in there, then by then it was him, me and Greg basically like churning and churning and churning together as a team for a good chunk of the season and not a great experience for anybody involved. I think probably the writers would, would agree with the um, power hungry control freak label because I was trying to make Kevin happy. And I loved that show so deeply and had sort of my opinions, which I, you know, were an extension of Kevin's opinions. And so in my mind, it was my job and sort of my, my role as a, as a lover of all things Dawson Creek, Dawson's Creek to, to contribute and to participate and to be a voice there. But I'm going to ask the question Mm -hmm. that I think some might be thinking, do you think that you were viewed as a power hungry control freak that an element of that was because you're a woman and not a man in that role saying, Hey, this is the job I'm here to do. But it, it came do you think there's an element of that or do you think it was different? I think a lot of things like I, you know, when the whole Me Too movement started, I was like, oh, have I ever really been mistreated? You know, um, in, in you know, whether it be sexually harassed or even just mistreated because I'm female. And that was the one I kept circling back to. Mm. But, you know, the, there's an accountability that we all have to take for yeah. the way that we are perceived. And as much as we can also then wake up one day and be like, wait a second, mm-hmm. like, I don't think you would have said that about a man, you know? Um, And what I realized that I had done is blindly, I had blindly jumped into an environment without thinking politics, without thinking hierarchy, without thinking like that I wasn't even an employee of the show. And because that's how Kevin and I worked and ultimately Greg too, because we were all this little like core it just felt so natural for me to be a part of all the decisions and to be the one giving notes on the scripts and to be the one, you know, at like helping with the rewrites and all that stuff. But nobody knew that. Like nobody knew what I was doing to help. And they just saw me as either the person who was speaking up when they shouldn't speak, you know, like had no business being in the room in the first place. The person who was sort of steamrolling over other writers, um, the person who was, um, I went to a marketing meeting with Kevin who was upset about the lack of marketing in season two. And I was taking a stand, sort of helping him support his argument with big shots. And I'm not even working on the show, you know, (laughs) so I was just fucking dumb in that way. And and coming totally from the heart, you know, like everything from the heart and also being in a very intense working relationship with Kevin where we had a lot to do. And he gave me all this, you know, rope with which to, I guess, hang myself, um, but freedom. And I pissed off people and they really did not like it. This one person in particular really did not like it. So if we can learn from this, because I'm really trying to understand what the lesson is then. Is it know your place in, in yeah. your new workplace? It, or what, what have you, after 10 years, come to? Go ahead, well, we also So yeah. we've had an episode about failure and uh-huh. we talked about, like, I think that everyone needs to be fired at some point in their mm-hmm. life. Yes. Like someone needs to like have a like where you don't get it or like that big learning lesson of like, oh man, you know, it's, and it's just part of it. And in like, especially when you're young or overstepping your boundaries where someone has to be like, um, excuse me, that isn't your place. You, this actually isn't your job and you're, you're over speaking someone else. Um, but do you think, was this the first time that you'd really had that 
in your life? Were you just like, oh yeah. man? Well, I had gotten kicked out of the school play my senior year in high school. It was the first time I had the lead. Uh, and I was very excited about that, but I got sick for a week. And then on the last day of being sick, which was the day before tech rehearsals, there was a soccer game at our school was going to like soccer playoffs. And I ditched the rehearsal and went to the soccer game and they fired my ass off the school play. And I'm like, well, duh, of course. But at the time it was like very <laughs> traumatic. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to help me keep track of this. Cause there's like three points that I want to make sure it's, it's like, I'm staying a linear path. I think, one is um, basic youth and naivete. Two is entitlement. And three is uh, is perhaps a bit of the the being a young woman in what is not a young woman's game. It's certainly not at that point. Um, the naivete I touched on already a little, which is just like, come on, Julie. This is not summer camp. This is not the playground. This is a billion slash trillion dollar industry run by CEOs and people like who have been doing this forever. And who the fuck do you think you are going in there and just like steamrolling all over everybody else's jobs? Now, was I doing it with malintention? No. I admire your guts. Yeah. I have to say, I really do. I I, I do. And I know you had to learn that lesson, but Man, it's I really respect it at the same time. So I get I get it at, at the same time. It was it was dumb. It was dumb, but it was pure. It yeah. was who I was, right? And and by the way, I say this all the time and I'll circle back to this in entitlement, but like I'm still that same person, only now I'm in charge. <laughs> and people think I'm awesome, right? I'm still like that. Now, what hurt so much was getting characterized as power hungry because Control freak, it took me about a decade to realize, like, actually, I am like, I'm a workaholic. And part of being a workaholic is feeling like you need to be have your hand in every single detail and that you need to weigh in and be there and, you know, and, 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 and do the work. And so I was very um, probably aggressive and the things that I felt like I needed to control. And over the years, I taught myself how to not be that way anymore. But the power hungry thing really just sat with me and I felt so mischaracterized and so misunderstood. And that was the heartbreak. And, you know, also when you're 29 years old and you find out that all these people that you were working with don't like you, like talk about a humbling experience. And that it took me a, I mean, still, I have deep insecurities as a result of probably that slap in the face, but a good 10 years to even get my like sort of groove back, you know? Mm to get my jujus and my mojo and in and, and order and feel confident again. Um, so youth and, and just re- remembering that this is a business with people in it who really have been doing it for quite a long time and they are not wrong. Sometimes they are, mm. but you are not right. Mm. Sometimes you are, but just, you know, temper it all. Be a little bit less oblivious, be a little bit more um, in tune with, you know, Read the room, (laughs) read your place in the room, room. which kind of takes me to the entitlement thing because I mean, now here's where my, like my old lady, you know, (laughs) my old lady, you know, personality comes out. But my friends and I who are, we're all in our forties. All we do is sit around and marvel over how unbearingly entitled 20 somethings are. And we're always just like, oh, the millennials, you know, millennial this, millennial that. But um, 
But when I look back at what I was doing back then and what the way I behaved in my career in my 20s, there was a big level of entitlement that I wasn't even recognizing I had. And it's a very fine line, Kayla, because you thank you for saying that you think it's badass. And part of it is badass, right? Like not many people would have the wherewithal within them to do that. The blind guts. (laughs) Serious. Um, Balls. And uh, but it comes at a price. When all is said and done, this is a town of creative people, filmmakers, storytellers, and artists, in spite of also being a major multi-trillion dollar, you know, business run by CEOs. And within limits and within reasons, there is a a level of entitlement that kind of comes with raw talent that sometimes you end up realizing, like, I want to let this person be. I don't mm. want to humiliate them. I don't want to humble them. I don't want to put them back in their place because what's happening in front of my eyes is something really special. And I think had I think that where it went wrong for me is that Greg and Kevin and Marianne and Wes, as they nurtured me up through my 20s, saw something special in me. And I just became accustomed to being special in that way and to believing that the value I was adding was so was was so important and and so needed that it never occurred to me that somebody could be looking at me through a completely different prism mm-hmm. and that what other people might see as oh look she's such a hard worker and she's really contributing so much somebody else might see as who does she think she is get that woman <laughs> that woman, Mm -hmm. I will never forget, get that woman out of my space, you know? And I honestly think I worked with some women coming up through my years, um, one who was a complete raging ball buster, rat as cool as chick in town. But when she got mad, you could hear her screaming from two blocks away. And she really struggled with her temper. And I remember thinking like, I don't ever want to have to be that. I don't want to have to be the person that has to scream like a man do in order to get taken seriously. And then I've worked with other people who like, you know, dress to the nines, hair in perfect, you know, perfect shape, like perfect face of makeup, gorgeous in a ball gown, like really presenting themselves as, um, as classy, beautiful, hardworking professionals um, who they themselves are struggling so much to get taken seriously. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want to be that either. I don't want to have to put so much work into my appearance and my body and my clothes and my hair that that's exhausting. Just, just in hopes that I'll fit into some sense of like Hollywood style or chic or, you know, that I'm like, you know, in the sorority. So I never want to be that. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to jump into Julie's 30s and hear about when she was ready to finally share her own story. This is now a, a nine-part series yeah. about my one decade to the next. We'll be back right after the break. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So we're sitting here talking about this dinner that we were all at at Kevin's house uh, the other week. And I'm thinking back about your guys. I think it was your very first podcast about FOMO and Mm -hmm. Instagram Mm -hmm. and how everyone's like curating their best lives. And you never just live the moment. And we were at a dinner with Kevin Williamson (laughs) and Paul Wesley and his wife. Who is the fanciest house, by the way? Yes, by the way. And Candace and Joe and Kayla and Tanner and me and Brett Matthews. And not a single person was on the gram. There were no pictures. There was not. And I thought, well, that's when you've really settled into your life and feel comfortable in your own space is when you don't need to like gather for the group shot that ends up on Instagram just because you were hanging out with a bunch of Vampire Diaries people. I know. I never. Anytime I see like never. I'm always just like, oh man, well, I guess maybe we should have taken one, but it's so bad. I mean, even when we've all done conventions together. I'm just like, maybe we should take a, no, no, we're all just kind of like hanging. We spend the whole time together, but then no one ends up like being like, hey guys, let's take the shot. I think it's also such a family vibe that for me anyways, when I'm with quote unquote family, you know, and friends of the family you choose, you kind of let your hair down to a point where you you almost want to treasure that moment yeah. and more so than even putting it on Instagram. I don't know. There's something about keeping it private that makes it even more special. Well, so much yeah. of Instagram now is so exploitive. You're like, <laughs> I was laughing at Tyler Blackburn. I was on the set of Roswell right before Christmas. And I was like, dude, get over here. I'm putting you in my Insta story. You have like 13 million followers. <laughs> get over here. And no shame. <laughs> no shame. Just exploit the hell out of that. So um, anyway, I just thought that was a nice button on your on yeah. your concerns from episode one. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, okay, I'm ex- so we're back. So you've been blackballed from Warner Brothers. You're 29 years old, and what do you do next? <laughs> well, <laughs> you go through an awkward uh, shared 30th birthday party oh, with, with Greg, your your best friend, um, who is about to basically embark on the most magnificent chapter of his career as you are poor and unemployed. Now, let me ask <laughs> you shamed. this, because and we've all been there. Is there jealousy there a little bit? Is it a tinge or is it not jealousy? Is it, is it sadness? What is What emotion goes around with that? Because as happy as you are for your friend, it's also hard sometimes when one is so on top and one isn't. Greg just exudes gift. Greg is very gifted and Greg has been gifted his whole life. And certainly when we were in our twenties and it just was so obvious to me how gifted he was. And so when his success began for me, I was like, 
ta-da, of course. And so I was very happy for him to have that. But what was strange about it is then my insecurity kicked in because suddenly then I was the one without the job and the one without any money and the one who needed help, whereas the roles had been completely reversed at the beginning of our professional friendship because when he and I used to get together, he was the one that didn't know what he wanted to do and he was the one that wasn't writing and he was the one that didn't have a writing career. And, you know, I was like, oh, let's, you know, let me introduce you to Kevin and here's Dawson's Creek. And Kevin was like, I want to sell this pitch that Greg has. And so I'm going to hire him as a writer on Dawson's Creek and give him a job. So Mm. I had been rightfully so because Greg is so talented. I had been like blowing him up. Uh, and then <laughs> suddenly I was like the loser. I had to borrow money from him, you know, which was it, it's humiliating, you know, like so much of our own swagger in this town comes from our confidence. In fact, the uh, the people who have no confidence and fake swagger are the worst, in my mm. opinion, because they're the ones that are like need to be at all the parties and need to do all the meetings and the networking. And you're just like, oh, God, like just own some piece of yourself that you believe in. You know, um, I had all this confidence, but was, it had all been sort of ripped out from under me. And so I didn't know how to fake swagger. I just was sort of like, uh, oh. help. Um, so yes, I launched my 30th year in a real bad spot. Wow. And I think that that went on, that little bad spot went on for two years because I didn't want anybody to know that. I needed a job. Mm. I just wanted somebody to call and give me a job, which now I know is really dumb. Um, but, you know, perception being nine tenths of the law, like I didn't want people to think I was doing anything but chasing my dreams and, you know, developing my own stuff and, you know, trying to be a producer and all those things that you think, oh, like no one's going to know that I'm unemployed if I behave like this. I didn't ever want to have to call around and let go on job interviews and look for work because I had had sort of a meteoric rise in my 20s working for Kevin. I was a producer practically by the time I was 30. And I didn't want to have to go and say, oh, do you need an executive? I'm, you know, a mid-level executive I'm looking. So I just didn't look. And I just lived off credit cards and Greg oh my God. <laughs> and Wes and Marianne, God bless them, like basically called up and they're like, we need some help with this thing we're doing. Will you come freelance again for us? And that turned into basically three years of my life because we ended up making Cursed, which is the movie that Kevin wrote about werewolves in Hollywood and that Wes directed. And I got hired on that. Uh, and and it took us three years. And I won't go into that story. That That's a whole other podcast uh, that we should do. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's such a good story, We need though. to have that be a I mean, singular podcast it's episode. It's such a good story. But three years to make a movie, which wow. we made, by the way, like four times. Um, and by the end of that movie, I was writing the reshoot pages because Kevin got so annoyed about two-thirds of the way through the process. He was like, I am done with this. Like they can all go fuck themselves. Like I've got other things to do. And so I was the one left to like, you know, when we were reshooting the ending for the third time to, um, to write those pages. So uh, that's kind of in its own strange way, how the writing thing came back around for me. And also within that I had um, kind of doubled down again on wanting to be a writer. And so I had this other script that I sent to a, two new agents and said, if you want to sign me, I'm available. And they did. And it was so great. And they're like, 
this is awesome. We're going to rep you. And then like two months later, they called and they're like, hey, there's this executive job that we think you'd really be great for. Do you want it? And I thought, oh, <laughs> all right. Well, I guess I guess I'm not a writer. It's cool. Like, mm. you know, let's not get embarrassing about it, you know. Um, but the job was for a management company called Bender Spink, and they needed somebody to run TV production for them to take all their clients and say, who wants, who has a TV idea and let me help you shape it and let me help mm. you sell it. And then if it gets made, I'll produce it. And in my head, I thought, well, if I'm producing once it's one step closer to at some point in success, being able to say, and how about if I write one too, you know? Mm. Um, so my entire goal was just get a TV show on the air so that one day I could say, oh, can I write a script, an episode of it? And that somebody might say yes. And that I would finally be a writer. And that's basically exactly what happened. I secreted myself into, into my actual writing career. And that was Kyle XY, uh, a show that I produced the pilot for Bender Spink, um, and then was a producer on the series. And instead of waiting three years in success to get my first shot at writing, it was episode four of season one that they asked me to write and I did and they liked it and it just kind of went on from there. And that was the beginning of everything. Mm -hmm. And Kyle XY ended just as Vampire Diaries was being born. And what's that? I know, right? <laughs> By the way, it's so funny. I was just thinking about Vampire Diaries literally today. I mean, it's on my mind a lot, but I was, I was remembering the, party at Kevin's house that we had the series finale oh. and how I had, when the show ended, I had this massive wave of like, Oh, and I think it was even not even when that episode aired, it was like two hours later. No, no, it was when that episode aired. Cause it had already aired in the East coast. And I thought short of Hawaii, the vampire diaries is now officially over. And this whole nine-year, eight-year chapter of my life is now done. And that was a big moment of like this wave of kind of grief passed over me. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy. It's interesting how much you have to mourn the end of that story. And yeah. I think we all felt that. And I know you guys had been on this show for so long, but even just coming back for the ending and and feeling the amount of emotion when and, and the amount of love that and and heart that was put into that show. Um I don't know if everyone really truly gives that much of themselves to every piece of art that they do. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah. And yet it's weird. <laughs> And it's nice, but it's weird. And I think about like, so, okay. So at the end of my twenties, I am now blackballed from the WB. The WB in my mid thirties turns into the CW. Yes. And lo and behold, I, because of Kevin, because nobody wants me to write the Vampire Diaries, but they sure as hell want Kevin to write the Vampire Diaries. And Kevin is sure as hell not going to write the Vampire Diaries without me. <laughs> did you find it or did he find it or was it brought to you It was you brought guys? to us at lunch, me and me and Kev. Kevin and I <laughs> were, thanks mom, having lunch with our friend Jen Breslow, who you guys know and love. Mm -hmm. um, one day, I hope you tell your time capsule story, but I won't ruin it for the audience. Um, but we were having lunch with Jen and we were just, talking and catching up and she worked at the CW and we were talking about Twilight and True Blood and vampires and how surely the vampire genre must be dead by now. And she goes, well, I hope not because I'm trying to find writers for this book series that we have. And we talked about it for a minute. Kevin remembered it from a few years back because somebody had sent it to him to make a movie out of. And she just was like, do you guys want to write it? And he goes, no. 
And I said, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, okay, fine. And then, and then we did, but now I'm back in the room where it happens. Um, and every word that comes out of my mouth, I am terrified because Peter Roth, who's the head of Warner brothers at the time knew that whole CW, the WB story. He was right there in the middle of it. So he remembers wow. me probably as the girl that got blacklisted from the WB. Um, there are executives in that room that know the story and whether they remembered it or not in my head, I was on such like delicate earth there. Mm. Like I was just, and but my personality is I'm not a wallflower. <laughs> you know, Like it's really, really, really hard for me to sit back and say nothing. It is really difficult for me to sit in a room and not participate. And when I get into a zone, like a creative zone or a talk zone, I like a dinner party zone, we'll call it. Yeah. I lose track of how much I'm talking and how much I'm saying because I'm just so engaged in the moment. And then I will go home later, replay the whole thing in my head and be like, Julie, <laughs> shut up. Why are you talking? Why did you say that to Don Ostroff? Who do you Who's think you are? Who's the head of the CW <laughs> at the time? Who do you think you are? And so the first literally two years of the vampire diaries when Kevin was there was me basically relitigating my shame at the, at the WB in my head. Every time we had a meeting, every time we had a network notes call, every time I like was, you know, in the presence of the bosses, I was either, you know, sitting on my hands, trying not to say too much or over talking because that's just my personality. And then going home and suffering and being like, Oh my God, they're, I'm doing it all over again. I'm I'm just ruining it all over again. God, from my perspective at that time, you're the most powerful, like talented, like woman who's got all of her shit together and quite intimidating. So that's fascinating. <laughs> no, I'm really being serious. So that's fascinating to me that that is yeah. what that was what was really happening. Yeah, it was wow. really happening. I wow. mean, I grew into my confidence on that show because mm. uh, how couldn't you? You know, yeah. We were doing all the work and people loved it. And so at a certain point, you you can't be insecure about that because people love what you're doing yeah. and you're doing it really well, even though the process is difficult. It's like really, really well received. So, yes, Julie, me, Blossom Julie, like came out of her shell and, you know, was very confident about it to a certain degree, but just really laden with deep, deep, deep insecurity and fear that I was going to end up sort of oversharing or over talking myself or being entitled or being too, 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 you know, too much um, out of out of that position. Well, we talked before and we've talked a lot about the fact that season one, you and Kevin were in L.A. for most of it because yeah. it just scripts trying to keep up with the pace of everything and new scripts coming out and rewrites. And when did you start? I'm trying to remember. When did you start coming out more? Was it season two or season three? Because when did Kevin also move on to start working on different shows? Because at that point, it went from you and it was always you and Kevin. Yes. And then there was a shift into either season two or three where you were running the ship, essentially. Yeah, it was Kevin and Julie, Kevin and Julie, Kevin and Julie. And as a result, we were in Atlanta only in pockets, little small pockets, um, and didn't get to have a lot of the fun that one has when making a show. Um, we were just working all the time and sort of drowning in our own in our own workaholism and in our own stress. In season two, because Vampire Diaries was such a hit, Warner Brothers asked Kevin if he would lend a helping hand and help them produce the Secret Circle pilot. 
And that ended up taking quite a bit of time right around the time when we decided we had to kill Aunt Jenna. Mm. Sarah Um, Canning. Poor Sarah. (laughs) And so I had to come out and tell her that we were doing this and it was so dramatic and so painful. And like I was, I wanted to vomit Mm -hmm. and then she, I think wanted to, punch me and which like, is so the opposite so, I know she's like the nicest person in the whole world and she was so mad at me Ugh. and I because that was such a scarring experience yeah. we all went out drinking like I think Candace and Matt and Zach and I went out drinking and just started talking and then suddenly like for every night we were out doing something and every like weekend we were all together and and I just kept coming back and coming back because I could because I was finally outside of killing Aunt Jenna, like finally having fun Mm. and finally getting to know the people that I was writing for and feeling like I was part of that sort of the, the world and the voice and the Atlanta experience and all of that. And so everything kind of started to change really then. Okay. So at what point, because yes, we were all, we were all very bonded. We all spent a lot of time together. We all were working crazy hours. I mean, as much as we were working hard, we were playing hard and it was the best. It was just a dream. At what point did you kind of wake up one day and just go, okay, I got this. I am, I am the executive producer of this show. Or I did am you ever feel show. that way? Did you ever feel that way? Or was it slowly over time or was it just one day you woke up? So I, it took a long time to get there. Um, and intermittently that feeling would go away too. But basically when Kevin left the show after season two, I was on my own season three. And thankfully Caroline Dries had, Um, had come up the ranks and was now sort of my number two, my co-executive producer, uh, godsend lifesaver. But I was the one that had to keep the Vampire Diaries on the air and good. And I was terrified because, you know. That's a huge load of pressure. Speaking of gifted people, I mean, Kevin Williamson is fucking brilliant. Like he is so, so, so gifted and his style and his voice and the way that he thinks of story twists and, and moments and the dialogue, everything about him is so unique. And I grew up under him trying to write like him, but he has a signature thing that I was worried, oh God, what if without that, the show doesn't work because it was possible, you know? And so I drove myself into this deep, deep, deep workaholic, crazy emotional spiral for the first part of season three. Uh, Like Caroline could tell you guys stories of me like coming to her office and just bursting into tears um, because I was so scared and it wasn't going well logistically. We got a lot of bad cuts. The actors were all sort of feeling the actors, Candace, you weren't, you were wonderful. Um, (laughs) I'm slipping her a 20 as she's saying this. So. Like, you know, they were feeling one, the sort of absence of, of Kevin. They were feeling the absence of Marcos, who was our producer director who had come and gone over the first two seasons. Um, the originals were, you know, in the picture and getting a lot of great stories. And, you know, there was some insecurity about some of that from some of people not in this room. And, uh, <laughs> And it was just hard. And season three on a hit TV show is the year where all the actors start to feel trapped 
and like they're stuck in the show for the rest of their lives and they're going to age out of their own hireability while they're on a, this vampire show. And so there's that and there's all this going on. But basically what happened was I sort of hit rock bottom working so hard, but we got to what I would say is probably episode 305, which is The Reckoning, and then and then the Originals episode, which was eight, the oh, introduction. Oh, I'm so impressed that you know episode and, names Oh, I do. After it's crazy. Point. That's yeah. amazing. And the ratings went up. And I remember seeing, I don't remember which episode it was. Might have been Smells Like Team Spirit. It was right in that little pocket of time. And the ratings went up in season three, which never happens. Wow. And I thought, oh my God, like I did it. I did it. I almost died. I almost went completely mad. I shed a lot of tears. I probably really handled myself in a way that I would not want to do again, but I did it. The show's good. People like it. More people are liking it. And I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it. And that was the moment. I'm so happy you took the moment to celebrate that because so many times in life we brush over the wins and then we just kind of only focus on the really hard times. And I think you so deserved to celebrate that. Yeah. And I'm happy to know that you still within all that had the wherewithal to celebrate. Well, and and not only could I celebrate it, but that was also the moment when I thought, okay, now I have to do this better. Like I can't, I will die, literally die if I keep going at this the way that I've been going at it. I have got nobody in my corner except poor Caroline, who is probably going to die with me because I'm overworking her. <laughs> I have a room full of writers that I don't really quite know what to do with and who don't really, they think I'm like the killer of joy because I'm the one that was killing the pitches and I need to do something different. And I just switched on a dime and I said, from this day forward, I'm going to look for the gifted qualities of every writer in this room and I'm going to build them up. And I'm going to say, if you're good at this one thing, then I'm going to make you do that. And if you're good at this, then I'm going to build you up to do that. And suddenly Caroline, you know, even got better. She was already amazing. Michael Narducci stepped out of the shadows and became the M one of the MVPs. And then Brett Matthews started with us and, you know, it's now my show running partner and all these writers that had been sort of in my mind, the quiet enemy, cause I didn't know what to do with them now were able to shine and, and thrive and, and find their own voice and their confidence in the experience. Like I had had to find mine. Mm -hmm. And so once I found mine, I was able to sort of help pave the way for people to find theirs. And then suddenly from that became, let's do a spinoff. Let's do the original spinoff. Oh, great. Michael Narducci is really good at writing class. Let's get him over there. Let's um, do containment. This show that I, you know, was so excited that wasn't part of the vampire franchise. Let's do the tomorrow people with Greg Berlanti. Cause it was a show we used to watch on Nickelodeon when we were kids and wow. we talked about in college and then the world opened up and I could do it because I had people that I trusted who in a lot of ways, like I will go to the grave saying Michael Narducci is a better writer than I am in many ways, if not always. And so I could let him be the originals, you know, and be there to help him. Um, and that is when I think you guys, I know we talked about wanting to talk about like mentoring and finding, you know, and building up other people. And that's how Karina came into the picture. And, and it really, it's circling back to the fact that at the beginning of my career, I had people who believed in me and who let me flourish almost to their own detriment because I flourished my way right into exile. But they, that's just how I was treated. And so I really 
wanted other people to flourish as a result of the experience they're having with me. Now, would I call myself a great mentor? No, absolutely not. I don't not? do much to tell people <laughs> how to do things. I just am like, you're coming along on this ride with me. And if you're good, like I think you are, you are going to soar. And then I sort of like throw them out of the nest and hope that all goes well. But I give them the opportunity, which I didn't realize until I, ta- until I sort of ha- had the wisdom to look back and have talked to a lot of my friends who have struggled their whole career for just one person to give them a break. How few people are comfortable doing that. You know, most people are so territorial about their own success or their own, mm. what they have, and they don't want to share it. And for me, sharing it made me able to not be insane when I did my job and to not want to die when I did my job to build friendships that I hadn't been able to build because I've been working like a crazy person for all these years and to have a life and, and to broaden my business and to build other people's business. And it's a good way to go. Well, there's always been this idea of a boys club in Hollywood. And I think that's, it's how many women can get in the room in the boys club and find and make their own space in there when it's like, whoa, whoa, why don't we make our own fucking club? And I feel like that that's something you've done so wonderfully. And it's not necessarily that you only let women in and not men. I mean, it's exactly what you just said. You've recognized the gifts and talents in so many people and you've, you're just encouraging them along the way. And, and it's been so fun to be a part of a show where, you know, over the course of eight years, there were people that started off as PAs that then were like running the ship by the end of it. Or someone like Karina, who went from, you know, interviewing us as a journalist. And now here she is, you know, show running her own show, which you're producing with her and also directing on. I mean, so even if you don't feel like you're a mentor, I think you living your own path and you living your truth. And I think that's the mentoring that you don't even realize that you're doing. It's by example. And that's the lesson I think that you learn as, you know, your 20s are horrible. They're just horrible. Let's be real. You think they're the best time of your life. They're not. They're terrible. It's your most insecure time. You're, you have no money. You, you know, like relationships are terrifying and stuff that seems so real is not, you know, and then your thirties, you think, okay, now I finally got it. Right. Only to look back on your thirties and realize, well, those were terrible. (laughs) But what happens as you get older is your, like everything contextualizes itself your anxiety, you realize, oh, I'm always going to be the one that goes home at the end of a long day, lays in bed and replays the entire day in my head and kicks myself for everything stupid I said. I'm always going to be that person. I'm never going to grow out of that. But as someone now in my 40s, I can think, okay, well, I'm doing all right. Mm. And I still seem to have friends and people still seem to respect me. And I need to take better care of myself and not stop punishing myself so much. We punish ourselves so much when we're young and, 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 and never goes away, but we can, we can treat ourselves with more respect, with the more information and knowledge we have about how we've lived our lives. Professionally, I said, everything that got me into trouble in my twenties, I am still that way. I have not learned Mm. a goddamn lesson in some ways, except other than that I had that experience of being humiliated or being sort of torn down for who I was. And so now I can look and say, all right, what parts of me am I unwilling to change? Because that's just who I am. And what parts of me do I, can I be smart enough about tempering for the audience? Mm -hmm. Know your audience, you know, know that this person isn't going to take well to that side of your personality. Know that like, this is a situation where you might be more successful if you remain quiet. You know, know that 
respect, you know, for your elders, so to speak, even as you get older, <laughs> still goes a long way. And I also always talk about this, um, this example, circling back to entitlement and how we're also big and bold and believing of what we can do and what we're capable of in our 20s. But the thing that you don't realize until you get deep into decades later is that you might have the skill set and the talent and the ability to do all the things and, and, and achieve all your dreams in that way. But what you don't have is the intelligence and the sort of power of, of experiential confidence. And confidence born out of experience is completely different than the natural confidence that we have, like just by being like having our own swagger. And I always tell the story of like um, the the thing that to me defines experiential confidence is the person that can pick up the phone and call, say, the president of the United States when there's a problem and the president will take their call. So we're not calling the president in Hollywood, but who are we calling? Who can pick up the phone and dial Julia Roberts or uh, Stacey Snyder, the head of Fox or whatever she is now, you know, or, you know, any of the big wigs and get their call taken. People with experience ultimately. And, and everything else is just, you know, running around doing the work, but like having the power, which uh, frankly, I don't have that yet. Like that's my next, that's my next step is like, how can I be that confident that I can pick up the phone and dial Julia Roberts for mm -hmm. lack of a better example mm -hmm. and know with all confidence that she'll be looking forward to taking my call. And that's, that's the scary stuff. But it's fun. <laughs> so we all know that like we've, you are the Shonda Rhimes of the CW, of and, but what are your goals moving forward? I mean, now look at all these shows that you're a part of and it's kind of like your babies are out and are you, obviously you're still going to be raising them, but what is your next goal? Are you going to continue directing? Do you want to direct more? Do you want to kind of get into film? Are you just more in love with television? What kind of, what stories do you see yourself telling and how? I love television so much that I can't see a world in which I'm ever not making television. That being said, my three-year plan for sure is I really, really want to direct a movie because I would love to be able to do that job and play that role of like the visual storyteller in a window where I am not juggling 10 other jobs at mm. the same time. I love directing so much. I love directing television, but I'm literally like prepping Roswell and writing legacies on the weekend and doing notes for the originals, you know, during the production meeting and then on set juggling staffing meetings and staffing calls. And I've never been able to immerse myself into a story and a world and build it from scratch and actually be the visionary of the whole piece. And I just think that that would be a lot of fun. Um, and I also want to continue to um, nurture the Karinas of this world and the Narducci's and the Dries. Oh, the Dries is now. She doesn't need me. She's doing this <laughs> fine. She's doing Batwoman. Um, and the Bretts and make more shows that the people I love and that the writers I really admire want to make so that I can use, you know, the fact that the CW likes me and would happily make TV shows with me till, you know, they don't exist anymore until I'm dead and see if that experience can get translated over into other people getting to make their TV shows because being the sort of boss of your own thing is a thrill that you can't even imagine. I mean, it's terrifying and it's all those things, but 
being the sort of master of your own domain, the leader of your own universe, whatever you want to call it, but being the mother of, of your creation is a really powerful experience. And, um, and talk about confidence building, you know, talk about swagger. You really do. You come out of it feeling like you can do anything. And that's, that's pretty nice. Is there a story that has come to you that you haven't told yet? There isn't. And what's funny is, because this goes, you can file this away under professional insecurity that never goes away. Candace, you said, oh, I just assumed you must have always been writing. No. And writers give advice to other writers and say, what should I do if I want to be a writer? And writers will say, always be writing. I'm never writing. I'm writing for my job day in, day out. And when my job is not taking my time, which is the occasional midday Saturday or like two weeks at the end of May, I am nowhere near a pen, a paper, a story. Mm. I have no drawer full of ideas that I've never, you know, that I've never written that are just waiting. I don't have a file cabinet full of half finished scripts. I literally started to write on Kyle XY and have been working like a crazy person ever since and coming up now with legacies finishing its first season and Roswell finishing its first season and a little bit of a break before we go into season two. It's the first time I have ever been able to sit down and ask myself, what story do you want to tell? And let me tell you, that's the most beautiful thing that can happen to a writer. And for me personally, my worst nightmare, my absolute fucking worst nightmare, because I actually have to dig into myself and I'm not writing vampires and I'm not building on the world of Vampire Diaries for its third spinoff or I'm not rebooting a Roswell, you know, television show or I have to I have to start from scratch. And that's me back in high school with the blank page of the paper that's due tomorrow mm. and realizing I have no idea what to write. And it's wild. Well, we have a feeling you're going to get an A, whatever paper it is that you write. (laughs) Nice callback, And that's going to have to be (laughs) the next episode where we speak to you to hear (sighs) all about that. Thank you so much for being a part of and just supporting it from day one. Like you've been like such an awesome champion, like support, like being like, you guys got this and excited for this whole, you know, podcast journey that we've been on. And so. just to like uh, push us as creators to create our own content and something. And um, I know that we both feel so inspired by you and um, you have mentored us, whether you have been aware of it or not. And I really hope you listeners can um, find these pockets of brilliance that Julie shares and, um, implement that in, them into your own life and um, please come back on. I feel like we just only cracked the beginning of this and I, I can't believe time flew by so fast. So. I know. And I, like I said, would love to just talk and talk and talk till we all run out of things to say, but thank you for letting me babble as much as oh. I did. And I do want to say, and you don't have to use this, but, <laughs> so, but in, in under the category of great vampire diaries, tidbits. What I have loved is seeing you to build this brand for yourselves and this career for yourselves. And I mean, these two became friends on the pilot of a TV show. <laughs> on the airplane ride. On the airplane ride, the which I had forgotten. And I heard on the Michael Flannis <laughs> yeah. thing that I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You guys flew with Kat and yeah. me and, and oh, no, I was on Keaton. the plane with Trevino yeah. and Zach. Um, and, uh, and watching you guys, I mean, you've been at each other's weddings. You've been at, you know, um, all the big moments. You have 
been best girlfriends this whole time. And it's so real. And especially actors are not always that real. Mm -hmm. And acting friendships are rarely that real and supportive. And it's just amazing. And I love it. And honestly, like Vicky, of course, was one of my favorite characters. (laughs) But like I always say, like the reason Vicky Donovan couldn't like permanently die is because we all couldn't really live a world in the Vampire Diaries where Kayla wasn't around. (laughs) I feel the same where like my heart was so with that show that it means so much to me. So thank you. Appreciate that. But it's true. You, because of you, we have now made lifelong friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because of the decisions you guys made and um, it's just, just so crazy how one decision can affect you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, and like we're friends with Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Jolly, kind, nice Paul. Jolly, kind, nice, not cranky Paul. <laughs> well, I know you're getting your Instagram followers up. So, guys, you need to follow oh my Julie. God, Where can our listeners find you? At, at Tyler Blackburn. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, at Julie Plack. I'm super easy. I'm one, one, my two names as one on Twitter and Perfect. Instagram. Oh. <laughs> well, guys, we will come back and visit us next week. We are about to pop open a really good bottle of wine yes. and uh, hang out. But thanks for joining us. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST.